What's up, y'all, and welcome to the Idea Space. I'm Yancey Strickler. One of the most powerful new ideas of this century has a very silly name. It's called Donut Economics. It's a set of actionable, specific metrics and targets that will allow both humanity and our planet to thrive in the 21st century. The donut, as it's called, is already being used in governments around the world, including the city of Amsterdam, to rethink and redesign how they operate. Kate Rayworth is the Oxford economist who created the donut and who now spends her time implementing its model in the real world. Last week, I had the great honor to speak with Kate about her work, and we had an absolutely amazing conversation. As two food-based metaphorists exploring alternative futures and models, we had a lot to talk about, and we really connected. And I was surprised to find Kate spending as much time asking me questions as I spent asking her. This led to a remarkable series of exchanges where, as she put it, the donut met the bento and the bento met the donut. The conversation you're about to hear includes the origins of donut economics, Kate's thoughts on the future, and why the 21st century will be the century of nature's data. Here's Kate. But I would love to, love to start um, just with there's a great uh, tweet triptych of you and Mariana Mazzucato and <laughs> Stephanie Kelton holding each other's books. Yeah. And, you know, the, the three of you have really pushed the, the Western consensus on economics, the purpose of the state, the underlying assumptions about money. Yeah. Um, I would add Carlotta Perez and Elizabeth yeah. Anderson also to that list, two people I also admire. Why, why are your ideas and this community of voices connecting to this moment? Mm. So first, let me say it was really fun to make that little triptych of photos. Um, and it was prompted by the fact that Mariana had her book, Commission Economy, coming out. And I had a copy and I had her book and Stephanie's book. And I just wrote to them actually on, on like little, started a little conversation on Twitter. and said, should we, should we just do this thing where we each hold up each other's books? And it was really nice to put that together and then launch it together and tweet it out. And um, what I really like about doing that is that that doesn't mean that we agree with each other on absolutely everything. There is not a hundred percent overlap of ideas, but being able to celebrate these ideas that certainly their work, both of their work really uh, helps me rethink parts of economics that I hadn't seen and help take away some of the very 20th century thinking that we're all taught, whether it's in, do you know how finance is really designed and how government money really works? Do you, uh, do you realize how much you've been blindsided by the, the narrative about the market and the state and let's take that away. So to celebrate uh, that, yeah, the three of us and indeed others like Carlos Perez are, are, are pushing on those boundaries, pulling away or rather, rather than pushing on boundaries, let me say pulling away um, false propositions and myths and diagrams and, and narratives that really don't deserve to stand there anymore and saying, hang on, let's look behind this. So recognizing that there's that commonality to our work, but yes, that doesn't mean we agree with each other in 100%, but let's celebrate the diversity of um, views that we're bringing and, and where they overlap and, and let's debate around around the, the gaps in between. Um, so I really like standing in, in uh, solidarity with new economic thinkers. Some of them are women, some of them are people of colour, some of them are men, 
uh, but a lot of a lot of people whose work has overlaps and it doesn't mean it's all fits together in one neat little jigsaw puzzle because we're all figuring this stuff out from slightly different positions so i just like holding that tension um and celebrating it yeah i mean i think for for quite a long time it was it it felt hard to find uh, real alternative sort of theories or you know, how else might we explain the world? We, you know, reach the famous kind of end of history idea. And, and now, you know, it just, it feels very different. It feels like there have been, you know, we, we've been shown where uh, we've been limited by certain ideas and there are these sort of new possibilities. And I mean, I, I recently reread the first donut economics paper for Oxfam. Um, and I've, I've read the book as well, but I was really impressed going back to the paper because the the clarity of thinking, you know, how specific the the boundaries and the measures are that you talk about, you know, it's like a very, you know, a whole idea, you know, a W H O L E idea, and where it's both a, you know, it's it's like a significant shift, like a conceptual shift, and also a very specific proposal. And so, like when you were when you were writing it, did you feel that clarity? Were you unsure? Like, what was that environment you were publishing it into? Do you, can you think back to those moments? Yeah, and actually, I looked back over that paper the other day as well, and I was like, oh, what what would, I noticed it's something similar to what you're saying. It was like, you know, I would still put it like that. I, the core ideas, the core intention, the core examples, I would still say, and and that was, I was struck by that. I didn't at all think, oh, I would never have written it like that now. So back to that time, um, look, I was, an, I was an economics student in the early 1990s and then walked away from economics, very frustrated because it didn't deal with um, or give respect to, I'd say, the, the issues I cared most about, like the integrity of the, the environment, um, like social justice issues. Um, and, and when I was working at Oxfam, I found myself working on economics issues, but we never did it as economics. We did it as social justice, as campaigning against um, environmental degradation, climate change, workers' rights and global supply chain. And then I and I went on maternity leave. I had twins. I spent a year immersed in the care economy and I came back to work and a colleague of mine showed me this diagram that said, oh, well, here's one of the things that's been happening while you're away. And this, this diagram of the nine planetary boundaries had been published by leading earth system scientists like Johan Rockström and Will Steffen and about 30 of them. And then the picture is this circle with the sort of picture of the earth in it. And then these big red lines radiating out, these sort of overshooting lines of, of warning, of alarm. And the idea was the circle is the safe operating space for humanity. And in there, we can live well on this planet, living within the means of the planet. But we're in overshoot on climate change and on using too much fertilizer and converting too much land and biodiversity. And I just remember being viscerally struck at my desk by this picture. And I felt, you know, when I was an economic student, the environment was missing. It was unnamed. It certainly wasn't measured. It was called an externality, the environmental externality. And bang, here on the table in front of me, it's not economists. Of course, it's not economists. It's earth system scientists who put it on the table. I felt like they were throwing down a gauntlet to economists and saying, right, Here's the environment. If you won't put into your theories, we're going to do it. And by the way, it's not in your metrics. This is not in dollars. This is in parts per million of carbon dioxide. This is in tons of nitrogen and fertilizer released. This is in loss of species. So these are in nature's metrics. 
So I was just so excited at my desk. I thought this is the beginning of new economics and it's in pictures. And then I was literally sitting in this big open plan office in Oxfam and across the the, the office colleagues were fundraising because of a a famine that was a food price crisis and food crisis in in the Sahel. People who did not have food, uh, they were campaigning for children's rights to health and education across the world. And so I remember looking at the circle and thinking, hang on, the whole of that circle is not a good space for humanity. It's not like whatever level of Earth's resources we use, everything is safe. Actually, if there's an outer limit of humanity's use of Earth's resources, there's also an inner limit, and we've been calling them human rights for many decades, since 1948. And so I drew inside their circle, I drew a circle in the middle of it, and thought, if you don't want to overshoot that outer ring, you also don't want to fall short on the inner ring, because that's people's use of resources for food and water and housing and transport and income. And so I had this donut-shaped picture. And I'll be completely honest with you, I thought, well, I like that because I like representing things in pictures, but, you know, don't know what anybody else would say. And I literally shoved it in the bottom drawer of my desk for about six months. And then occasionally would find myself in conversations about social and environmental things. I said, well, I've I've got this picture in the bottom of my desk. And we said, that's that's good, that's useful. And because my colleague knew I'd been really impacted by the planetary boundaries diagram, he got invited to a, a workshop with some of these planetary boundary scientists. And he said, well, I can't go, Kate. Do you want to go? You like that picture, you go. And I found myself on the train to Exeter to go to this workshop thinking, what am I going to say? I'm not a scientist. I can't talk about the, you know, I had this real social scientist, natural scientist insecurity, this kind of classic thing. They're the real scientists with their hard numbers. And I went to this workshop and very early on in the workshop, somebody looked at me across the table and said, well, I'm looking at our colleague from Oxfam here because the problem I have with this planetary boundaries concept is there are no people in it. I thought, why is this guy staring at me? What's it? What and then I had in my belly one of those thoughts you think, am I going to do this? Am I going to, am I going to, I hadn't even bought a picture of the diagram with me. I just thought, am I going to, I'm going to do this. And I picked up a, 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 a whiteboard marker and I drew it on the wall. Okay, you drew this outer circle and I drew it really, really quickly because I was sort of slightly embarrassed. There's an inner circle too and it's got health and education and food and water. And, and I honestly thought, I'm being totally frank, I honestly thought they'd say, yes, dear, sit down. You know, that's nice, but come on, this is science. And, and actually, one of the Earth system scientists turned around and he said, that's the diagram we've been missing all along. It, it's not a circle, it's a donut. And for the rest of the workshop, everybody kept pointing to this diagram on the wall. And so for me, that was really realising the power of pictures. And, and it was at that moment, I'm being totally honest about it, it was because this Earth system scientist has said, that's the diagram we've miss, been missing. Then I got this real fire in my belly and I said, right, well, I'm going to write this up. I'm going to turn this into a paper. And that paper that you then read just kind of flowed out. It was, it, it just, it had a sort of force of itself to coming out. Um, I had this conviction because they'd said, that's what we've been missing. And the power of pictures that was so exciting. And when the paper was launched, the power of the picture, so many people said, oh, I've always thought of sustainable development a bit like this. I've just never seen the picture before. This is so helpful. And, and, and it made people feel more powerful as advocates. And it made them feel like they could argue against the idea of endless growth. And they could point to this. And I was, I was stunned. It's just, this is a diagram. It's a picture. And it put me on the track of thinking about the power of pictures and the, the visual framing that they do. George Lakoff, the cognitive linguist, who writes brilliantly about verbal framing. You know, you're going to talk about tax relief or tax justice. 
well, this is visual framing. What pictures are we going to put on the table? What pictures are we going to teach the economic students on day one? What, what do we put at the center of our vision and what do we leave peripheral? What do we draw and what's blank on the page? And that was really what inspired me to write the whole of Donut Economics through the lens of pictures, because I'd seen how impactful this one had been for so many people. Do you, do you think of the donut as, did you discover it? Did it, did it arrive to you? Did it combine in you? Like, I, I understand very much the feeling you're talking about. So how do you really, is, is the donut, was it a separate thing that passed into your mind at one point? How, how do you relate to that? So in that moment, I was um, doodling and I had this, this desire to, I, I think, I know I'm one of those many people who think visually and want to draw something. And I had this very strong compulsion. When, when I saw these planetary boundaries, I thought, okay, that's the natural scientist throwing down the gauntlet to mainstream economics. Here, in, here are the boundaries, deal with that. And I thought, here I am. We are social scientists. I'm sitting in Oxfam. What is the rejoinder that kind of come back from social justice? I need to layer something onto it. So I felt that I was adding, throwing another hat in the ring, adding something onto that. Um, and yeah, and it, it, once I'd drawn that circle and figured out the relation, it felt very, very clear. So it felt like a, in that moment, it felt like a, a, a creation. But of course, once I'd drawn it um, and, and then reflected, and it took months and even years for some of these things to come clear to me, of course, I can trace it back to things I've seen, right? And diagrams, and that was the beauty of it. Oh, of course. Uh, in, when I was working at the UN in, in the very um, late 1990s, so way more than a decade before this happened, um, I saw this diagram that had been drawn by Friends of the Earth in the Netherlands, and they'd drawn this, these two lines, and one was called a social floor, and the other was called an environmental ceiling. And they'd drawn this idea that there was a space in between that you wanted to be in, but they hadn't got any metrics. And I remember seeing this and thinking, oh, I like that picture. But there were no metrics, in it, and I, there was nothing... I didn't know what to do with it. So I must have filed it in the back of my head, or rather it chose to file itself in the back of my head, right? It sits there. This visual framing, these concepts sit there. I'd seen Herman Daly. He drew these, he's sort of the founding father of ecological economics. And he drew this, this amazing diagram that profoundly influenced me as well. Think of two circles and they each have a square inside. And in, in one of them, the square is quite small. And he says, this is empty world. This is the world of, let's say 19th and 20th century economics, where the square is the economy. It's quite small relative to the whole ecosystem. And so we draw in earth's materials and we put out waste and it's quite small and the, the planet's really big and the sky's so wide and the ocean's so deep and it can absorb the things we produce. And this is empty world economics and it's fine to go around talking about externalities. And But actually we don't live there anymore. We live in the other circle where the square is touching the sides of the circle. In fact, it's almost overshooting the edge of the circle. This is full world. Now, what kind of economics is suitable for full world where we're already banging into the sides of the biosphere? And again, of course, now I've realized when I saw the planetary boundaries diagram, I didn't twig it at the moment, but it was like the planetary boundaries, it's the square overshooting the circle. We're way beyond, it's Herman Daly's diagram brought to life in metrics. So that, but then even things that I'd never heard of, so when, once the donut diagram was published in that paper you saw in 2012, someone said to me, oh, oh, this comes from the ideas of a UK politician called Barbara Ward. Did you, did you know about this? I said, no, what did she say? Oh, in the 1970s, she made speeches saying, 
Just as there are outer limits of humanity's pressure on the earth, so too there are inner limits of what each person can bear. Like, so, so I love your question. Where did it come from? Did you discover it, create it, find it? I, it's like these ideas are in the ether. And, and, and some of them you've seen or heard of, and some of them you've never personally seen or heard of, but the, somehow they keep being transmitted. And there's this lovely quote from Andre Gide. He said, everything that needs to be said has already been said. But since nobody was listening, it has to be said again. And maybe each one of us is a repository for these ideas that we encounter. Think that's cool, but I, I don't quite know what to do with that. But it, but it, we store it and hold it somewhere, or culture holds it, and then it pops up again. This time with donuts. And so whenever I introduce this concept to the students I teach, I always tell that story, because I remember when I was a student, a concept looked like this pristine thing that was just there it was an idea that existed and I think it's really important to show that all ideas come from other ideas and we're influenced consciously or unconsciously by others and that means that this idea is just another input into your ideas so what are you going to create and how are you going to take this journey forward and what's going to come next so I love placing in a line like you know the donut is there's something very silly about calling it a donut it's a passing point Towards where? So where are we going? Where, which journey is it helping us move on to the next point? It's, it's almost like, you know, the, the donut has always been true. It has maybe always existed, but it needed to be found or it needed to be discovered, you know, needed to be conjugated. But there is something very beautiful about it. And it's there's a deeper truth. You know, I, I think of Alan Moore has an idea called the idea space, which is the notion of there's like a different universe where ideas live. There's a physical world, a spiritual world, and an ideas world. And he has a whole theory about ideas can be created in the idea space separate from human intervention, human participation at all. And uh, it's, it's powerful. It makes me think of the, the donut very much. No, so this, this was nine years ago, right? This is... Yeah. This is the ninth birthday of the donut. I love yes. that you celebrate its birthday. <laughs> I always celebrate Kickstarter's birthday. Yes. Um, so, you know, over those nine years, you, you had this idea, you wrote a book about it, you've spoken everywhere, you've championed it, now you are implementing it. Yeah. Um, what's been unexpected or what are the harder moments of this like? Hmm. Um. Let me start with the first one. What's been unexpected? Uh, so, so I, I having, having created this paper at Oxfam and it had way more resonance and traction than I imagined. I then realised that the best piece of advocacy I could do was to leave my role at Oxfam and write a book about it and and, and allow those ideas to expand more. And what that's why I wrote Donut Economics. And it was published in twenty seventeen. And at the time, you know, we're only in 2021 here, but in 2017, oh, that's very radical. Oh, that's a bit out there, you know. It was really edgy and out there. And um, but I, and I spent a couple of years presenting the ideas and just following invitations. And always after a talk, people would come up to me and say, well, I'm a teacher and I'm actually teaching this in my classroom now because I think the students deserve to see this and learn this. I'm a town councillor and I want to, I'm, I'm bringing this to my, I'm going to put the donut on the table at our next council meeting. I'm a startup entrepreneur. I really, really want to put these ideas at the heart of my business because actually that's why I'm in business. This, this, this expresses the purpose of why I've created an enterprise. I'm just using business as a really effective vehicle for doing that. Or um, I'm, a, I'm a city mayor. Or a, And so it was just really clear that people wanted to do this. And 
and I gradually realized I had to come out of my comfort zone, which was, you know, having been researcher at Oxfam, I, I like ideas. I just like researching and ideas and drawing and, and come out of that and say, oh, oh, we need to set up an organization that actually enables these people to connect and share. And so that was actually one of the hardest things for me. Um, having always wanted to spend my life, you know, don't think about managing people or money or setting an organization, just, just play with the ideas on a piece of paper. Actually, no, need to set up something. And so I found, I waited until I found a co-pilot because I knew I was never going to do this alone. I met this fantastic Spanish woman called Colata Sanz and just very actually intuitively, I'd only known her two days and I said, you know what, do you want to, should we, should we do something together? I just really liked her energy and intention. I thought, let's, let's set this up. So we started working together and it was also really clear we didn't want to set up an institute or um, that sounds far too big and heavy and built in bricks. And so with the idea of an action lab, oh, that feels, yes, it's about action. It's all about ideas into action. It's a lab, it's light, it's mobile, it's experimental, we're learning. Just had a playful mobility about it to me. So one of the things that surprised me is how much I've enjoyed doing this. Uh, I thought, you know, I would not want to do that bit, but actually, of course, creating something, and as I'm sure you know through your journey with Kickstarter, mm -hmm. it's just a fascinating journey of how do we create this in the spirit of donut economics? So how do we purpose it and how do we, how do we get it financed in a way and how do we design our team and how do we connect with others and then how do we give the ideas away? So we launched a platform, which is donuteconomics.org, but anybody can become a member. And there are tools that are open. So it's all about regenerative and distributive design. So we all of our tools are open for anybody to use and adapt. We just ask that they share back. So it's got the principle of reciprocity at the heart of what we're doing. And so this, in a way, in the Action Lab, this is our biggest experiment, is, is designing our own tools for openness. And how do we do that and ensure integrity of the ideas? Um, and so I'll, I'll segue to what you asked me, what's the hardest I suppose one thing, and it's not is it the hardest, it's the place where we're paying most attention because it would be the hardest thing to have go wrong. We're very aware that the the risk to the fact that we make the ideas of the donut and the tools open to everybody to use, the place where we feel that that most could go wrong would be in the space of business. And, and the reason I know that is that because some companies have come to me, over the, oh, we love the idea of the donut. And one company said, we've, we've created our own donut and they've actually taken out the center, which is the social foundation of human rights. And they'd replaced it with business needs and then had sort of, you know, the world's need down the outside and business needs in the middle. And I had to say, like, you see what you did there. You just basically took out human rights and put business wants needs in the middle. And it was totally unintentional. They hadn't intended to co-opt it for their own business purposes. So they hadn't seen what was happening because they put their very business mindset at the heart of it rather than asking how can business be in service to this. But then there were other companies, um, very incumbent, big, powerful companies that would love a, a, a cool little tool that, that would endorse them or make them look good and greenwashing and co-opting. So the place where we're paying most attention is around the way business can use it. And our, and our current principle is any company is welcome to use it. We've actually published a tool on our website called When Business Meets the Donut. We ask you that you use the whole thing. So you also look at the design of your company, including how it's owned and financed. So go into questions that might not be so comfortable. Um, but also we ask that you use it internally because there's a lot of work to do in most business. So use it as an internal reflection tool. Please don't rush out and put it on your website. Go talking about it. Don't try and associate it with it publicly because that really risks turning it into a piece of branding. Use it internally to reflect. 
And when we're ready, we'll open up more and engage more with business. So that's this that's this balance we're trying to make between openness and integrity, and that's the space. Because the hardest thing for me would be if it got greenwashed or co-opted and misused by business in a way that then undermined its credibility and value to everybody else who's finding it incredibly valuable. I think the I'd love to talk about the role of of business in society because I. You know, I, I went through the business meets the donut tool and, and watched the video and, and um, you know, we, we've, I've written also about the, the risk of profit motives. And, and when I was CEO of Kickstarter, we became a public benefit corporation in part because of this, you know, wanted to bind our current and future behavior, you know, according to a set of um, principles and values. And, you know, we were inspired to do that in part by, People like Peter Drucker or Konosuke Matsushita, who founded Panasonic, and they they written a lot about the power of a firm, and especially a firm having like purpose and a clarity in what they do. Yes. Um, and the idea that you have a clear theory of your business, you know, like here's what you should do and what you shouldn't do, because the really the hardest thing for any organization is to stay focused. Right. It's just very easy to get pulled into things that are not core. Um, and, you know, in, in my mind, maybe the most persuasive part of Milton Friedman's idea of shareholder value is this assumption that, you know, maybe companies are only going to be good at some things and they'll be bad at other things. Um, and like the more focused you are, the more effective you are. So, you know, there, there's a tension there between a business, its purpose, the wider world. How do you think about that interplay? Like, what are your instincts in, in this area? Mm. So I and I appreciate what you're saying that you know. So Milton Friedman is saying you know the social the social business of a, of a business is is to make make profit. Um, the business of business is business, as it were. Uh, yeah, there's a simple clarity to that. But I'm not sure that we as people lead much of our lives anywhere else like that. Like certainly in my family, uh, I'm always in my mind juggling more complex things in terms of you know my children's welfare or even where where should we go on holiday there's multiple factors that we take into account and that's what we humans learn to do we balance multiple factors and it doesn't mean there's any one right answer but we learn to do that when we learn to drive a car we don't have one dial in front of us where you know up is good up up is good and down is bad it's like look at the speed look at the temperature look at the revs look at what gear you're in and we learn to do that. So we are actually able to balance multiple considerations to optimize something towards a goal. So I wouldn't let business say, oh, it's really hard to, you know, have a, have a more complex purpose. Of course, there, when, when you, if you have a really big, broad purpose for, for an enterprise, and then as you said, well, it could go in many, many, many different directions. So how do we make that choice? But I also see plenty of enterprises, um, and, and I would say particularly new kinds of enterprises that are set up with a very clear purpose and that make sure that they design all of the design features of their organization to be in service to that purpose. And when we engage with any company, and, and you'll have seen it in, in the When Business Meets the Donut tool, we say, look, we can talk what we like about the design of your products and what it's made from and the working conditions and supply chains, and that all matters. But what we think is the really deep determinant of whether or not you as an enterprise can be part of a regenerative and distributive future that brings humanity into the donut is the design of your business itself. So, yep, let's start with there's five design traits. Let's start with purpose. What are you in service to? And I get this from the brilliant 
and corporate analyst Marjorie Kelly, right? And she says, do you have a living purpose? And, and, and you can spot a company with a living purpose because it speaks of something much bigger than itself. And recognize itself, you know, we're here to decarbonize energy. We're here to bring health to this community. We're here to enable change makers in this space. And we are in service of that. And the role we play is this, as opposed to a very 20th century um, self-regarding company that might say, well, our purpose is to be the biggest four by four manufacturer in Europe or something like that. Um, so having a, a living purpose. But then it's anyone can almost write something that looks like a living purpose on a website. You can just go and change the code and save the new page and you've got this new purpose. But what matters is that everything else is aligned with actually delivering on that. So your networks, your relationship with your customers and your suppliers and your staff, how do you actually live out the values and that purpose with them and instill it in them and make sure they hold you to it when times get tough? How do you embody in your governance, who has voice, the decision, who's at the table, the metrics, the, the metrics by which you judge the enterprise's success, but also the incentives given to middle management and are those aligned? Um, and then going deeper, and, th and this is where I think the real power lies, is how is your enterprise owned? Because whether it's owned by a founding entrepreneur or venture capital or shareholders or owned by the state or by employees or by a seventh generation family, all of these are prevailing ownership models. They all happen out there. And they all have a huge impact on the bottom trait, which is how the company's financed, where that finance is coming from and what that finance expects and demands. And if it's shareholders, they will typically work, say, well, I want a fast high return, double digits, please, if possible, but nothing too much short of that. Or is it owned by the employees who say, well, the finance is coming in and we want it to be reinvested in our own conditions and in, in, in the duration of our enterprise? Or is it owned by the state? Um, so where the finance is coming from, but also how profits are therefore distributed and whether that finance is in service to the purpose or whether actually the purpose ends up serving the finance. So for us, it's really key that companies have those deeper design conversations and then you can say, OK, what's our purpose? And as long as I, I think the extent to which we align our networks, our governance and our ownership and our finance, then we can pursue what seems like a more complex purpose. But it becomes very clear whether we are indeed the way we're, say, expanding our car sharing uh, club service. Are we indeed decarbonizing the energy system or are we just growing because we're driven by growth for growth's sake? Um, so. I, I have faith in, in the human ability to, to juggle multiple variables and optimize that if we have comp companies that are aligned through their full design, that purpose can be more complex than simply share, serving shareholder value. In, in the original donut economics paper, you know, you talk about moving beyond GDP as a core metric of success. Um, and you've written also how markets put a price on everything and they exploit the things that aren't priced. So, I wonder, how do you think about addressing this question? Is it about putting prices on things that don't have prices? So we use finance to say, think differently about the price of our value of a forest. Is it by creating new forms of value that price has to compete with? So like other metrics, is it about, you know, tools that limit where the markets can go? How do you, how do you think about pushing back against the dominance of price? Yeah, it's a really big one. Um, so as you as you mentioned, I, I often start by in conversations about the power of markets and, and the scope of markets, say, look, markets are really, really powerful. Adam Smith was onto something. They are a brilliant information mechanism through the price mechanism of coordinating the wants and needs and the offers and the purchases of billions of people who may never 
talk or meet, but they can coordinate through this mechanism. There's just two caveats. They, they only serve those who can pay, the rest they ignore, and they only value what's priced, the rest they tend to exploit. And those are pretty big caveats. So to your question, what do we do? Do we try to make sure that everyone can pay and that everything is priced? So the everyone can pay story, I mean, you could say, well, does that go, that goes almost to universal basic income and redistribution and, and, and ensuring everybody has access as if everything should be sold through the market. And then we all express our values through the market. I think there are huge limits to that. But let's go to the question you're asking. If we really want to make sure that business doesn't exploit the living world, should we put a price on everything? And indeed, governments, governments exploit the living world through subsidizing fossil fuel companies or even allowing them to continue to practice. So there is, let's say there are two big projects, I'd say, that are going on at the moment. And the one follows this logic and says, what's priced gets protected. We value what we measure. The language of power is money. Treasuries work in dollars and pounds. So we need to bring nature onto our balance sheets. And we need to express the value of natural capital along with financial and, and, and manufactured capital and human capital. And we need to reflect the value of ecosystem services like the value of bee pollination so that governments ban chemicals that kills bees. Now, that's one project. And I often say to people, tell me how you talk about the environment and I'll tell you what your job is. And if people say, oh, well, I talk about the value of ecosystem services, the value of natural capital and how we need to bring it into accounting, I'll say your job is probably you're facing policymakers today and you're trying to get that wood protected, that bee protected, that toxic chemical banned. You're trying to make change now. You're speaking the language of power to power for short term security of the living world. And I totally know why you're doing that. I understand why you're doing that. But there's also a whole other project that's emerging. And the people who will, you know, the people who work in that project, because they will speak not of natural capital and ecosystem service value, but they will speak of the living world. And they will talk about planetary boundaries. And then they'll come and talk, as the Earth system scientists do, in, in parts per million of carbon dioxide and tons of nitrogen. And so instead of flattening all the information into dollar value, they're actually speaking in nature's metrics. And, and this is the century, and this is the center of big data, and it's also the center of natural data. We can measure the carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere day to day. We can see Earth breathing. Uh, we can see her breathe in and out as the, as through the months and the, and the seasons. Uh, we can measure the toxicity of, of chemicals in the soil or the intensity of uh, nitrates in the oceans. So we've got data that no generation before us had, and it would be really weird to my mind to say, let's take this incredibly rich data and flatten it in something that was called GDP invented in the 1930s. And there's one number that's insensitive to complexity or tipping points or horizons. Why would you do that? So my energy goes into this, this second project where we say, actually, rather than trying to monetize everything until we've got this complete accounts and we've turned nature into an asset on our balance sheet, Let's just take a whole other verbal framing and say, actually, we are part of the web of life and it's way more complex than we, we understand. We're only beginning to understand that. But we can begin to measure and understand the natural world and her cycles and her tipping points and her interdependencies in nature's own metrics. So I would rather move from the rarefication of economists. I would rather listen more to the ecologists 
in the broadest sense of earth system science and believe that we're at the beginning of a big project to allow earth to speak in her own metrics and that we understand it and also by the way we can combine that with social metrics so understanding human well-being not through income per capita but through people's access to education and well-being and social connection and their resilience and their sense of belonging so i i'm i'm all for that project um and Find, and again, going back to your point about Milton Freeman, the, the beauty, of course, of the dollar value is it seems like we can measure everything and add it up. And this pile is bigger than that pile. So we do this one. And of course, that's where all the danger lies, because it reduces the complexity that we knew was there. And it financializes nature. And it put, if you put a dollar value on something, you know, economists often say, no, it's, it's not a price, it's a value. But where we see a value, we smell a price. And where we smell a price, we spy a market. And where we spy a market, going, going, go on, the living world just got sold. So I would keep it well away from that financial value and keep it in the language of its own terms, which is more complex. And we're only just beginning to visualize it and know how to tell that story and see those interconnections. So I'm in it for the long project, which I believe is the 21st century project rather than the 2021 project of, of putting money value on nature. Yeah, I mean, it seems like so much of there's such a cost of measurement. You know, the, the we don't see it as clearly now because digital measurement is so much easier, but like money was maybe the something always worth counting you know counting counting nature manually in the past might not have made as much sense um, but you know with, with digital sensors all these things like we have the ability to assign or identify value to the most microscopic action or decision or part of our world and and to me it feels like this especially this next decade but i think the coming decades are about this this shift in, in everything moving through this uh, financial conversion, which has crazy high conversion fees. It's like an, you know, an ATM in an airport or something. And instead moving more towards trying to actually represent what's happening. So you and, agree, and I, I'm going to ask you questions back. You, you agree that that makes more sense to you to, to, to go more with the natural metric? Oh yeah. To, to me, the, like the, the core project of, humanity to me right now is about defining uh defining the set of measurements that will allow us to create the world that we want to live in and and the notion that uh finance can be the shorthand is you know clearly flawed i think in the past it was kind of i think the argument that like this is the best we can do with what we know i think is fairly persuasive in the past i don't think that's true anymore and I think that what we know and what we're capable of knowing is so much larger and, and the, the limits of our system are so obvious. So, you know, it requires courage. It requires generational change. It requires a, a willingness to look at the world anew, but I don't know how we can't look at the last five years, especially, and say that isn't exactly what, what's happening. Um, and so to me, the, you know, it is about it is about data. It is about us becoming more comfortable with different kinds of data. I think a lot of the pushback against social data, our skepticism has been warranted, but also somewhat problematic because we're going to need these measurements. We're going to need to measure ourselves in ways that might feel awkward or immoral or amoral, but I think ultimately are just this, this transition, this adolescence we're going through of figuring out how we you know, better understand ourselves. I like the idea that we're in data adolescence. We're dating, yeah, was... we're dating <laughs> like teenagers, right? <laughs> um, 
So uh, recently I've talked with um, the journalist David Wallace-Wells, who mm-hmm. did Uninhabitable Earth, and uh, this venture capitalist, Albert Wenger, uh, who's big in climate change. And both of them have talked about this sort of new thing they are noticing of what David Wallace-Wells called climate self-interest, where governments and businesses now see decarbonization as in their self-interest. They can see that it will improve public health, but just as much they can see it's it will be profitable. There, there are all sorts of advantages to this. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how you feel about the financial motive, you know, coming into uh, solutions to climate change. Um, there are certainly uh, companies and sectors that... Um, are increasingly, as you say, seeing it as profitable because the, say, for example, the costs of renewable energy have just come flying down this cost curve. Um, and actually, the, the the point that riles me on that is I, I've sometimes heard people from the world of finance um, or the private sector speaking in conferences, saying things like, as if to say, you know, don't worry, we're here now. We'll we'll take we'll take this over now. We we we're here and we're going to solve it now. And I want to say, do you know how many decades worth of social activists, of entrepreneurs, of people who do it in their sheds, in their garages, because they're determined to figure out how to make a solar panel and or, or people who did it just for the sheer determination of it, who brought this thing down the cost curve for you until it landed at a point you're like, oh, that fits in my wallet. I'll just run with this from here now, you know, or, and that neglect of all the work that's been done to bring it to this price point for you. Um, I'm gonna reflect on the circular economy, which is very related, right? So we think about decarbonization in relation to the shift to climate change, but the circular economy where we use resources again and again is, is crucial to reducing the material extraction of industry. And, and, and that's crucial to one, one crucial part of protecting biodiversity. So I've seen in the space of circular economy promotion, People, again, wanting to speak to power, wanting to make it appealing to power, talk about circular advantage um, and, and making the self-interest argument. It's your interest to have a circular uh, supply chain because actually you can mine your own materials, you can control them, it'll become cheaper in the long run. And of course, it, it's, it's often, if you want to speak to power, speak to companies about profit and their own self-interest and it, it's going to first turn ahead if that company is still typically owned and financed in a way that what it's driven to do is to deliver a big profit. But the dangers of that is that they will therefore only listen to the need for circularity to the extent that it delivers on profit. So the circular advantage space, it's like saying, here are some strategies that deliver circularity. Uh, and if you're coming at it from this self-interest perspective, what you do is you just listen to them and you pick off the ones that also increase your profits rather than, again, saying what kind of business is compatible with life on this planet, given the, all that we now know in the 21st century, and what transformations need to happen. And by the way, the kind of business is, is one that's going from being a degenerative to a regenerative business, and also going from driving divisive returns to more distributive returns with everybody who co-creates the value that that business creates. So those are the dynamics of businesses that are compatible with bringing humanity into the donut. So we need your business to transform not in, it, in, its, in, in the materials it uses, in the technologies it uses, and in the design, the purpose, network, governance, ownership, and finance of your enterprise so that you can become regenerative by design. 
So it's not enough for you to turn back to me and say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're doing circular, but just we're doing these three bits because they were really great for our bottom line. So that's you capturing circularity, the notion of circularity and driving it to your old purpose, which is driving returns, rather than taking on the living purpose and saying we need to be part of a regenerative planet. And wow, we as a business need to do some deep transformation. And we need to figure out how we can transform ourselves so that we become circular by design, because that is what the 21st century demands. So yeah, there's a real danger of opening the door with the self-interest argument. But the trouble is that the only part of the body that comes through the door is the self-interest. And it just Mm -hmm. flips around for what works for it and only takes that up and, and doesn't transform its wider purpose. So to use use your language from earlier, maybe it's the the financial motive is like a 2021 solution, but not a 21st century solution. Oh, yeah. Right? Okay. Yes, let's go for that. Yes, exactly. You know? Exactly. And, and again, um, you know, tell me how you talk to business and I'll tell you what your job is. And if you tell business what's the financial interest in decarbonizing, what's the financial interest in circular advantage? Ah, you're somebody who's really trying to get those big, powerful companies today to transform because we know they want to transform towards COP26 and in this decade, right? You want short term. And the danger is we we win this particular battle, but we keep, we lose the war, as it were. It's not a great metaphor, is it? Mm-hmm. We, 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 we keep framing things in an old frame that works for now, but we give up the chance of transforming the mindset that we definitely know we need for the long, for the longer journey. Absolutely. So... Um, my project is uh, called the Bento Society, and uh-huh. uh, like you, I am a food-themed metaphor. And in, in my case, the the Bento box. And for me, my project is around the question of self-interest. Um, so you know, I, I, I thought a lot about um, this question of self-interest in in time after working on Kickstarter. And, and like you, I had a a visual doodling moment one day of drawing a hockey stick graph and thinking, oh, this is like the the crucifix of self-interest today. This is like our emblem of just whatever I want is growing so fast. Mm-hmm. The line slopes up. And then I had this moment of seeing how the x-axis of that chart extends from now far into the future. And the y-axis of self-interest, it also extends from me to us as our self-interest grows, so do our responsibilities. And suddenly my hockey stick graph was these four quadrants that I described as now me, what I as an individual want right now, future me, what the older, wiser version of me uh, wants me to do. That person becomes real or not real based on the choices I make each moment. In the top left, there's now us, uh, the people in my life who count on me and vice versa. And the top right is future us, my children or my future self. And so when I drew this, I thought, oh, wow, all of these spaces are in my self-interest, you know, it's not just this like short-term individualistic space. And next to it, I wrote a simple description beyond near-term orientation. That's what this little two by two did. And I realized that made an acronym for BENTO. And so, oh, BENTO. So, you know, so I'm like you, I'm running, I'm running with a metaphor and many parts of your, 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 your idea I, I connect with. Um, but, you know, the core idea here is that, you know, people are driven by self-interest and being self-interested, you know, is something we all understand. However, in the West, we've defined ourselves by an incredibly limited version of self-interest, of immediate individualism, short-term individualism. Um, And to me, I think about if we can shift how we think of our own self-interest in such a way to incorporate a future self or incorporate 
the people that we love and care about in our lives in just a slightly better way. But there's a, a number of things that unlock from there. I'm curious how you think about self-interest, how you define it, where, where that fits into sort of the donut world. So two things. First one, so I like your bento box. Uh, I like. I, I will never eat out of a bento box again without thinking. Now, which one of these? <laughs> all of the rice is in future meat, you know. Um, I also, of course, like the playful, playful food, foodiness of it. And, and I think there's something very powerful about making ideas playfully light because they're not intimidating, right? A lot of people are intimidated by economics, but anybody who has donut economics already knows this is not an intimidating space. Come on in. Um, so self-interest. Hmm. What that triggers in me immediately, I think of, um, you know, Adam Smith, the classic phrase from his 1776 book. Um, he said, it is not from uh, the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer and the baker that we expect our dinner, but it's from their regard to their own interest. So it was self-interest at the heart of that market mechanism. They, you know, they make the bread and the beer um, and the bacon because we're paying for it. And that's why they supply it day after day after day. And that goes back to this brilliance of the market mechanism. So, so yes, and, and the, the idea of interest, self-interest sits at the, again at the heart of rational economic man, the character put at the center of economics. And actually it was, it was John Stuart Mill who did something really unhelpful around this. Uh, he was trying to define um, political economy and distinguish between the kind of political economy and, and, and philosophy and social science. And he, to do that, he said, in the space of political economy, we, we don't take the whole of man in society. We see him as a being who desires to possess wealth. Now, he doesn't use the word self-interest there, but it's, this, it's a very narrow, you know, I, so a being, the individual, and he has this desire and it's to possess something. So there's a very strong articulation of self-interest there. And by doing that, John Stuart Mill said, okay, this is the character characterization of humanity. We're gonna put the heart of economics. And then everybody just over the centuries added all these other characters like, and he has perfect information. He can see in the future and the past and he knows everything and he's self, he's independent and he's not influenced by other people's opinions. Like what an absurd character is that? Because we know that we're deeply social. We're the most social of all mammals. So I'm not drawn by the idea of self-interest. It's really interesting listening to you say it, but I, I would rather say interest. I have interests because the word self, it, it, it makes, you know, it, it pulls us back to the, the I. Now, you, I suppose you could redefine self-interest in a very broad sense, but I like the idea of, of course, we have interests. Now, uh, what's the breadth of those interests? Who is included in those interests? And how? And, and of course, they're related to us. And how far forward and back do we go in those interests? What I'll, what does come to my mind? And it's because my partner is the philosopher and writer Roman Krasnarek, and he's written a book called The Good Ancestor. And we've talked a lot about this, about thinking about future generations. And one one of the um, activities he invites people to do is to imagine their child when their child is 90 years old at their birthday party and they're about to, you know, standing up wobbly at their chair and about to give a speech about being 90 years old and they glance over and see a photograph of you and, and they're going to say something about you and what do they say about you? And this brings in the idea of the legacy that you've created for this person in the future. But when we were talking together about this visualisation, this, this idea, what really struck Roman very vividly was if I really care about my daughter, 
So this is about, in a sense, my daughter, you could say that's future me, right? That's the, that's the first extension away from me. Oh, it's my child, future me through my child. If I really care about my child in the future, I have to care about the society of which she's a part because there's no way she can survive alone. So it drives me. If I care about my children, it drives me to care about the community of which they're a part. And so I find that a very intuitive and a beautiful expansion, quickly taking this, so I'm going with your sense of the self actually quickly expands. So myself living on in some sense through my child, but then if I care about my child, what I have to care about the community. And so to, and, and what it really does is takes us back to what we know, which is we're such social animals. We are deeply interdependent upon one other. And so if I care about myself, I have to therefore care about my community because I know it's what sustains me. In the very same way that if we care about humanity, we have to care about the planetary boundaries in which we live because we're part of that web as well. It's not humans against nature. It's humans sustained by and therefore dependent upon nature. It's not my interest against the society. I'm dependent upon society. And so have to care about its well-being. But I want to ask you back, Is that how do you think about extending from self-interest out to, say, future us? It's something that... I mean, the, the bento as like a scaffolding makes it very present to me. It's something I, I think about all the time. Um, you know, I use the form and so do the people in the, in the organization every week to make our weekly priority list, my to-do list. And so every week I have my now me to-dos, which are wow. work and errands, you know, run to the bank. Uh-huh. My now us to-do is who are the people in my life I need to be in touch with this week? Who do I need to give energy to? Who am I missing? My future me is always, I think of it as like my Obi-Wan Kenobi voice that tells me like, be patient, you know, don't, don't be so thirsty, just relax, you know, and future us invites me precisely to think about the world my child will live in mm. or my future self will live in. And I have to ask myself, what can I do in the next seven days that positively contributes to that? And inevitably it comes down to me trying to learn something me trying to teach something or me giving my time in some way. And so they, they're they all like future us is a part of my now. It is very actively a part of my thinking. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think of the, like, if I think of these things as being in my self-interest, it's not selfish, but it is like, I care. It is, I'm a part of this. I, I am larger than this entity sitting in this chair at this moment. All of these spaces are true. And I'm trying to opinionate about them. I'm trying to, you know, to, to learn how to operate within them. And, um, and there's a feeling of coherence, you know, of wholeness to where I have learned that a good day for me is a day actually when I do something that satisfies each of these boxes, like I can feel that I can feel the difference of, uh, uh, of how it fills me up. So it's just, it's just making them more tangible, I think, mm. and, and less conceptual has been the end result. I, I've been living according to my bento for three years. Oh. Like it's in front of me, I have my values written down. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's like a, a bento for the bento society. And there's, you know, thousands of people have done this at this point, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's just trying to articulate those spaces and make them a like just a part of your life rather than these hazy visions that you feel guilty that you're not thinking enough about, you know, just maybe more of my relation to the future and the and other points in my life. Oh, I, I know I shouldn't be doing this because it's bad for me later on, but whatever. Right. For and now- and so two, two things. So would it be could one way I could think of 
coming to, to, to reconcile myself with the, this use of the word self, what I just heard you, I can express as, these are the interests held by myself. Sure. I have a self, it is me, and these this is the whole range of interests that I hold. These are my self's interests. So it's not that these interests are in service to me, but these are the interests that belong to me and are held by me. I, I can work with it if it if it, it feels yeah. to me that way around. And also you were saying, you know, there are things I can do for future us. And of course, some of those things might be that they might feel intention to someone. So somebody, I don't know, um, midlife crisis person says, now me, I want to buy a red Ferrari. But then looks to future us and says, actually, not only should I not buy a red Ferrari, I should actually get rid of my car because I live in a city yeah. and I need it. So it's about letting go of things as well, right? So I can I can bring into the now me, um, I can transform what I thought I wanted because of my reflections from the future us. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, I think a lot of our anxiety we feel on a dated on a momentary level is maybe that lack of clarity about the larger context we're in. Uh, when I first had this idea. Um, I had to do a number of things to make sure I wasn't crazy. Like a week later, I had to stand in front of 30 strangers. I asked a friend of mine to arrange a salon. I was like, I want to figure out if I can say an idea out loud to people without throwing up, <laughs> please. Can you, <laughs> can I come to your house? And so like did that. Um, uh, but you know, just, just, um, yeah, just finding the way that, that, that it, it, it connects with people, um, in that kind of way. I, I lost my train of thought for a second. Um, I, I um, so I, I had one last question. Um, well, before you go there, though, I want to yeah. say I, I want to riff with the donut and the bento. So, yeah, um, I mean, we could, of course, put the donut. Well, it certainly belongs in future us. Right. It, because it's a big vision. It's, but it's not necessarily future. I mean, it could be. Fe- well, I don't know. I don't know if it fits inside the bento, how it relates to the bento box. You could have mini donuts in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's. Mm-hmm. I mean, but, but but then not everybody would value those things. I don't know. Or do you believe that by holding that space of the future us, if people really reflect on what we need and what, what we'll need in the future, you think it helps bring around a more social, a community-oriented and a ecologically aware mindset? Yeah. Have you seen I mean, that reflected in people, that it helps? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of, my, the present? one of my beliefs is that people's values are justly earned are are you know that people how people see the world is based on their experience and i it's my job to respect that and listen to it and not to try to change it and so to me a value system that like asks someone to adopt a different set of values is like kind of a non-starter but if there could be a system that puts your values in a larger context and and empowers you to reflect on them to me that is something that seems uh, wholly positive but what it does is it just invites you. It invites you to develop an awareness and it invites you to develop an opinion. It says, you don't know what's important about your relationships, really? Like you can't, well, let's take a few minutes to think about that. And, and so it just, it just prompts questions. Um, but I, I very, you know, I, I, yeah, I just, I have a very strong feeling that in, imposing values on, on one another is a, is a losing proposition and that, I do trust in the goodness of people. I don't think everyone's good, but I trust in the goodness of people. And and I don't know, you know, I, I loved, I saw Greta Thunberg on, on cable news this week and the TV announcer asked a very 21st century question, he's, or 20th century question. He mm-hmm. said, if you had 
total power to do whatever you wanted, what would you do? And her answer was, I would never take total power. I would, there would be a democracy. It would be what do people want to do? Yeah. Right. And, and so I have that kind of trust in, in people yeah. that, and that, and that's where I connect with like the Adam Smith idea of trusting someone to live according to their self-interest. Cause you know what, maybe that Baker, maybe what, what he's wrong about what Adam Smith is wrong about is the baker wasn't motivated by money. Maybe the baker was motivated by a desire to be a great baker. So he's like, great, I will make you, I will make you bread because it is in my future me self-interest to be a great baker because it's my passion. Yeah. Now that is still his self-interest. And, and that to me strikes that, that is like just as true as any other plausible explanation. And, and it speaks to this like multiplicity of values and sort of the dimensionality of, of self-interest. And so to me, like, that speaks to our humanness and and allows us to be bigger than who we are as individuals. You know, when I, when I was facing my, like, what the hell am I doing in my life with this crazy idea? And like, I'm going to die a failure with my ridiculous idiosyncratic concept. I went to an art museum and there was a Caravaggio painting. It's called St. Jerome Writing. And it was like a monk hunched over a big, thick book. And he was very old. And on the other side of the book was a skull looking back at him. And I just thought, I looked at that picture that one day and I thought that skull was the last person sitting in that chair and sitting out of frame is a long line of men and women monks waiting their turn to write maybe a paragraph in this book. Mm. And that, and that is life. Like that, that is life in a best case scenario that you are adding on to something someone else did and someone else is adding on to what you did. Yes. And the notion that I should only think about myself in terms of this time while I'm alive, you know, it just, I could feel the absurdity of that. And what I felt seeing that painting and thinking about this idea, I felt a liberation. I felt a liberation of, oh, what I'm doing is not about me. It's about something bigger. I'm just this vessel and I'm very happy to be a vessel. I feel lucky to be a vessel. What a great, what a great task to be given by the universe. But, you know, it, 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 it's scary and it, it is like, yeah, it's, it's accepting a, a different notion of self. That totally resonates with me and, and with what I told before about drawing this donut and then realizing it had been in my own mind and then said by people who I'd never heard before. And it's, it's, it's around and, and Andre Gide, right? Everything that's said needs, needs to be said has been said. Let's say it once more with donuts. Let's say it again with bento boxes and, and just and let's keep bringing these ideas back. And they will need to be brought again and again in different ways and pictures and sounds and um, languages and to be a vessel in, in, in that long chain. So I do love saying, you know, the donut is, is never the end point. Goodness me, you know, w- what will it become? What will somebody else pick it up with and flip it over and, and, and create it into something new? And I, I really share that. And I think it's a really healthy humility to hold as well. So whenever we share the donut, our first principle is we've never have never asked anybody to talk about it, use it, promote it. Uh, because as you said, there's why would you push values on somebody who doesn't want those values? So everybody who's ever used the donut is because they've seen it and thought, oh, this really resonates with something I was already feeling. And I'm going to use it to put it into practice something that I wanted to do. And that means it's having this spontaneous uptake around the world of little community groups that are popping up everywhere or city governments that are saying we want to do it because they're finding it's useful to them. And there's, there's nothing that could give me greater thrill of seeing this part of our experiment working in this way. But then also knowing that 
you know, in 20 years' time, they won't be talking about donuts. So, you know, I, I, I sort of hope they won't be because it'll become, the donut is a way that helps it bring it into our thinking to the point that I hope that regenerative and distributive design, because these are the dynamics we need, this becomes so central, so familiar to our thinking that we don't need the playful frame of the donut to bring it into the room anymore. It's just there. And so that word has gone. And it, do, you remember, do you remember in the early 2020s, people talk about donuts? Isn't that bizarre? And lovely. So yeah, let, let the donut be one of the skulls on the table that we've moved past and something else came along and we, and we progressed. Amen. Uh, so my, my very last question, my very last, just sure. so wonderful. I, I, my heart is filled with so much joy being with you today. Um, so the, the, the subtitle of Donut Economics is seven ways to think like a 21st century economist. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's distinguishing about the 21st century versus the 20th for economics or other fields? Like what, what is this era? How do you see this period that we're in? Um, instant answer. Uh, First of all, I, I, I think we're in what people call the Anthropocene, right? So we've realized that humanity has become the major driver of change at the Earth system scale. It turns out the sky is not so big and the oceans are not so deep. We have gone from Herman Daly's frame from empty world to full world. So if anything, I had to point to, I say, here we are, we're in full world and let's call full world 21st century. And it's begun with multiple crises. It's begun with financial meltdown. It's become with climate, begun with climate and ecological breakdown. Now we're in COVID lockdown. And these crises are sending messages to us again and again and again that progress does not lie in endless expansion. It lies in balance. So that's um, the first place. I'll also say that if you look at the economists of the 20th century and back, they've all got they may have a variety of views from John Maynard Keynes to Milton Friedman to Adam Smith to Karl Marx, but they've all got one or two things very much in common. They were all men. They were all white. They were all from the global north. They were from colonizing countries. And these traits of these economists delimited what they did and didn't see and what they did or didn't think was important. Adam Smith writing about the power of the market and, and, and interest you know, he didn't notice that it wasn't just the butcher, the brewer and the breaker who put his dinner on the table. It was his mum in the unpaid caring work of the household economy. If he had noticed, he could have invented feminist economics back in the 1770s. He didn't. So it took 200 years for women to say, hello, you've missed out the unpaid caring economy. David Ricardo thought that land was actually the scarce factor. And he was putting it at the heart of his theories that we were going to run out of land. And then, hey, presto, oh, we found land overseas other places we can take over. So actually let's change our focus. It's going to be labor that we're going to run out of. And this is the reason why we still focus on labor productivity, labor productivity. So hang on, why are we obsessed with labor productivity? There's mass unemployment. Why are we trying to chase more and more productivity out of each person? So who we are shapes what we pay attention to, shapes what we do and don't see, shapes what we put at the heart of our theories. So another part of the 21st century economist is the diversity. That's essential. Bringing women, people of colour, people from different class, people from the global south, whose starting point is different. Amartya Sen, son of Bengal, did not start his economic thinking with, hello, here's the market supply and demand. He starts with, why are some people facing famine and have no entitlement and access to the market? Uh, Harjun Chang, born in South Korea when people called it a third world country, and watches his nation rocket up in economic success by following trade and investment rules and industry rules that are completely counter to what the World Bank was saying you should do, liberalise everything, 
uh, women from feminist economists or and now and you know of course it's not just women saying oh we see the unpaid household economy it's also women saying hang on a minute don't don't be so down on the state actually the state is a great entrepreneur mariana matacata stephanie kelton and and so this brings us right back to why we took that little triptych photo and that's one of the diversities that's come into economics more female economists but more people of color more people from a, a working class background need to say actually here's a class-based analysis so marx was right it's essential are we labor or are we capital and it matters and it hasn't gone away let's bring it back in so to me 21st century economics is also about that diversity of perspectives and the last thing i'll say is i think it's fantastic that worldwide there's a student movement in some countries it's rethinking economics it's plural economics but what they're calling for is a pluralism in economics teaching saying there's no one school of thought that has it right so teach us this plurality um, and while we do it, can we decolonize economic thinking and, and bring in that plurality as well so that we can be critical thinkers and, and recognize the diversity of views and understandings that it takes to be able to see the whole? Because no one of us can see it all. We need the multiplicity of our views to have a chance at seeing the complexity of what's before us. Wonderful, wonderful, Kate. This has been amazing. And we didn't even get to talk about all the great things Deal is doing, which I'm also super interested in. Uh, maybe that'll be another time that's to learn fine. about uh, all of that. It's excellent. It was, you know, when, when the bento met the donut and when the donut met the bento. And, um, <laughs> great, really enjoyed it. <laughs>